Welcome to KPMG's Transformation Outlook podcast, a podcast made for and by professionals responsible for digitization. My name is Erik Wesselman, Head of Digital Transformation Advisory. And I'm Guido Sony as Head of Digital Strategy. Changing market conditions and technological developments are accelerating. As a result, many organizations are faced with the great challenge of achieving continuity in a rapidly changing world. This is a clear task. Existing organizational structures, processes, and business models must be overhauled and the customers must become more central. In this podcast series, we explore the challenge together with various experts. Each episode, Guido and myself, together with two guests, discuss one of the eight capabilities that are considered to be crucial for success. We do this by discussing concrete and appealing examples. Yeah, and today is all about digital architecture, the technological fundamental under each and every digital transformation. And we are delighted to announce our first English episodes, also special for me and Eric. We'll try our best. And we have two very good uh, special guests um, at the table. On the one end, we have uh, Alexandra Caraguela. And on the other side of the table, we have Daniel Gabler. Um, first, a bit about Alexandra. She started her career within KPMG IT Advisory, actually as a colleague of Eric and myself, um, moved then to Gardner Consulting, and afterwards she um, moved her career to ABN AMRO, where she currently has a dual role responsible for the Data Analytics Center of Excellence and also the bank-wide lead for marketing automation rejuvenation. On the other side, Daniel, he describes himself as a tech lead who loves to build great products. He has a PhD in computer science. He was an R&D director at Fredhopper, a software for shelf optimization. And since six years, he's the founder and CTO of Picnic Technologies. And also good to mention, in 2020, he was nominated for the CIO of the Year Award. We start with you, uh, Daniel. Um, what was your first reaction when you heard this theme, digital transformation from a digital architecture perspective? Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Um when we are talking about architectures, then uh, we are actually talking about two aspects. One thing is the way how we build software these days, uh, but also which kind of opportunities do we enable our product owners, our uh, engineering managers uh, to build tomorrow. And uh, when we are looking in architecture, then uh, in a startup, in a scale-up world, you're looking especially in aspects like evolutionary architectures. And what this means is that you're looking into architectures that are for sure not the same over time. So that can evolve, that can extend, that it can change. And that is something what uh, we learned in Picnic that is now by now around uh, five, six years old. is probably the most important aspect of architecture, something that you can change easily. If we look at the other side of the table, Alexandra, is this something you, you recognize from your role within ABN AMRO? Well, I would say um, I do agree with uh, with Daniel, um, and I agree from uh, from two perspectives. Um, I noted, let's say, in the area of data and analytics, because that's still where uh, my passion lies and where I operate, um, you cannot really decouple, let's say, data and analytics initiatives and functions uh, from digital transformations and digital architectures. Um, even more importantly, and that's something I learned in various organizations even before joining ABN AMRO, um, it is another type of architecture which is key and is often overlooked, and that is data and information architecture. Um, I would say in my current role, I kind of noted the linkage in between the two. And again, I refer to data analytics and digital architectures and digital transformations, um, especially when you want to offer seamless access to data in a democratized fashion, yet with sufficient data management and governance in place. I have to say this because we're working um, as part of a bank. 
um, but also in order to extract value from data swiftly and ultimately do what every company out there wants, and that is to have a fact-based, data-driven way of working. So I tend to agree, but I also see it from a slightly different uh, perspective. I think we are pretty close in uh, what you're describing, and I think what is interesting, and that's something what we learned especially now over the last two or three years, is that software architecture and data architecture, basically the two aspects that you're mentioning, are two sides of the same coin. And what brings both together, and uh, we, we coined the term Zoda for this, so software and data architecture, uh, uh, is that if you want to have a self-learning and self-optimizing system where data is fed from a uh, reporting or from an analytical system back into a production system, then uh, basically the data architecture defines which kind of software architecture you need, but also the software architecture defines which kind of data you can collect. So these are basically always two things that are so closely co coupled that uh, you need to define it always at the same time. Absolutely agree. And if I am to put it uh, in my current context, um, there are two other aspects to take into account. Um, at least in our bank, they are absolutely critical. Uh, one is the enterprise architecture. Because as a bank, uh, you would like to know where you would like to be in the next uh, five years with the degree of flexibility that you also mentioned. And the technical architecture. Um, and I have to say this is important for us as well because we still have a couple of um, yeah, legacy applications and systems to uh, get rid of. Some of them are in my own portfolio and I can tell you it's quite a, it's quite a challenge to migrate away. Hey, Daniel, I have a question for you. Um, when you look at the role of, let's say, the architect eh, and then, let's say, the enterprise architect, and you look at digitization, how, how would you describe this role and what's needed for this role in an organization so that eh, the, the people listen to this podcast and think about, hey, how do I uh, improve my enterprise uh, architecture function uh, that they get some, some handrails for that? Yeah. I'm coming from... Um more from the startup and scale-up world, so kind of early-stage companies that build uh, software solutions from scratch, where architecture actually has a slightly different role than in an environment uh, where you have already a large system and you need to change the system or you need to make a digital transformation. When I'm looking to enterprise architecture in, um, in the world of startup and scale-ups, it's mainly the kind of technical counterpart of a product owner. And what you're looking into is what are the kind of data models and software architectures that do not allow only to realize the kind of product features and user stories that uh, you need for the next few weeks and months, but especially also allow you that you can build without too much effort in a few years' time the capabilities that you uh, now know, don't know. So the most important thing in the, in the startup and scale-up world is, and everybody knows that you don't know exactly what you will need in two or three years' time, but how do you enable to build easily something what you don't know exactly now what you need to most likely build in a few years' time? Yeah, that's maybe also good to, to explain for our listeners. Maybe you can um, uh, refer a little bit back to what you said in the beginning. Where you talked about evolutionary architecture. Why is that so important for a company like Picnic and maybe different for a company like ABN Emro? Let me maybe start with an example. So we started Picnic with the um, observation uh, that we can do uh, online grocery uh, delivery in a better way than whatever um, offered before. So we came up with a new operational model, business model, and then we basically built the software architecture around it. What we realized a couple of years later is this is a forward logistic system, but we should also be able to do backward logistics or return logistics, basically taking stuff back from a customer to suppliers, 
which is a completely different use mo uh, business model that we never thought of in, when we started in 2015. So having an architecture that allows you to basically reverse all the flows, not only forward flow to customers, but also backward flow from customers, is something which is only possible in the evolution of your architecture, because that is something, is not a new use case on top of it, but it's an, uh, an entire change of the entire architectural model. So this is just one of the cases, and we have probably in Picnic uh, a few dozen uh, use cases where we had to really completely revamp the entire architecture, and that is possible with an evolutionary architecture model. Mm -hmm. And how does that then, because uh, Alexandra, you work at ABN AMRO, eh? now that's a big corporate, of course, eh? uh, but I can imagine that within the corporate, you also have startups, eh? because it's size, right? So how does it, uh, can you reflect on what Daniel just explained? Uh, Sure. Around the agility. So let's say we have um, uh, named startups um, and officially recognized startups, and we have a lot of uh, entrepreneurship uh, inside the uh, the organization. I dare to say that our teams are also operated in a, operating in a kind of startup uh, modus. But our starting point, at least reflecting uh, on my time uh, during uh, um, during ABN Amro, has been very different to Daniel's. Uh, and I'm referring to 2019, just to put things in perspective. So um, when I started in my role, or in my two roles, um, we were kind of handed over a couple of migrations and decommissionings of customer experience legacy platforms, one of which has been used, and if you ask me, uh, abused for 20 years. Um, that has been our initial challenge, and I have to say we're not even done uh, yet after 2.5 years of hard work and um, sweat and tears, if I am to uh, reflect the feeling uh, of, of people in the teams. At the same time, you might ask uh, uh, me what kept you and the teams going, because this is not the most uh, exotic and appealing uh, type of work. Well, I believe what kept us going was um, in parallel, in less than two years, to put live a brand new stack of cloud-based SaaS platforms. Um, and of course, we didn't do it all at the same time because we also had to select them. We also had to fit them into uh, the future state architectures. Of course, in a bank, you will find a lot of uh, these things. And I found that very, uh, very exciting. Um, part of the challenge, and I would say the even more challenging part, except for integrating all these uh, new pieces of, uh, of software and services, was to infuse the organization. So think of the business users with all the brand new data and digital capabilities that they had to more often than not rapidly adopt. So a little bit of a different starting point, but I think quite similar direction. And in your role, do you then also uh, help basically the team to develop the right capabilities that are required to embrace such well, architecture principles and... Absolutely. So yeah. there are a bunch of, uh, of uh, technical capabilities that, of course, uh, our teams, but also the broader set of teams need to uh, need to embrace. And they tend to, to change almost every six months, which is something this bank is not really used to do. Uh, and even more importantly, um, and if I reflect on 2019, I think we grew three times in size. And also the amount of uh, data and digital capabilities that we started to offer to ABN AMRO tripled in, uh, in size. And that puts a lot of pressure not only on us as delivery parties, but also on the users because they need to, uh, yeah, in a rapid pace, in a short period of time, adopt uh, brand new things that they could not even dream of five years ago. So it's exciting but challenging. <laughs> 
Dat brings me a bit to the topic uh, of, uh, let's say, the ecosystem uh, of suppliers that you work with, uh, Daniel. Uh, there's a plethora of technology partners, I can imagine, that uh, Picnic also works with. Uh, how, what, what is your role exactly in that and how does that relate to architecture towards this ecosystem? So, um, as a kind of cloud native company, we uh, had luxury uh, to start uh, from scratch a cloud native uh, solution. So, basically, uh, everything that we build ourselves is deployed in the cloud. The solutions and partners uh, we work with are um, predominantly also uh, cloud providers. So, that is definitely a, a big advantage. But what becomes here the role of an architect is to define really, on the one hand, what do we own ourselves and what should be done by a third party. That's one thing. The other one is also said from an architectural design perspective that we define every capability from an API perspective. Not so much on what is the use case that we cover there, but what are the APIs and how do we integrate there. And that is something uh, uh, maybe just to link to uh, what was said earlier in, uh, in the case of ABN. Uh, the biggest challenge that you have in digital transformation eh, with the architecture is that you typically have an on-prem monolithic type of architecture. And the reality is if you make this kind of transformation, you start with uh, a small piece. Uh, you, can, you cannot do just a, let's say, single piece uh, transformation or you cannot move one piece to the cloud. You need to make it all together. And then uh, the second kind of challenge you have is uh, that you don't want to just make a sidestep, but you want to make a step forward that you will not also enable new functionalities. And that is a kind of a big piece that uh, requires also that everybody involved in this kind of transformation understands where is the future of uh, the bank or whatever kind of business going to. So that's the reason why everybody on our side who is involved in architecture gets also a training, what is our future business model? Because you're designing day in, day out, also APIs for the future, that's number one. Number two, we need to also realize that every engineer is making micro-architectural decisions. So even if you have an enterprise architect, you make micro-decisions day in, day out that are defining the overall architecture. And that is something uh, we need to realize that Essentially, everybody in the tech team is an architect. Some more on an abstraction level, maybe more on a detail level, but everybody is an architect. And I think that requires also that everybody needs to be trained to think in architectural terms. And then, uh, because I spoke about the ecosystem of suppliers, eh, because you work with software vendors, and uh, I can imagine mm -hmm. uh, cloud, uh, cloud vendors. So, so, so how do you engage them in, let's say, the, the, the development of the business model of Picnic and what their role is going forward. So do you challenge their strategies on their development of their solutions or do you just take their solution and adapt it? Or how, how do you see that uh, in your in your role? We, we basically have a two-way approach for this. So a large part of our, the tech stack, uh, we completely own ourselves. So we build ourselves, we operate ourselves. The parties with whom we are working uh, are essentially in two classes. So they are very big parties where we just assume that the software stack that we use now, we need to use for the next years. So obviously there's a little bit of a roadmap and there's new stuff coming, but in essence, a technology decision is purely based on what uh, they can deliver now. With smaller vendors, we work so closely together that we actually steer them in a direction that they build also to a large extent functionalities that is uh, valuable for us. And then um, we are usually starting from an API perspective, so API first, where we really derive all the functionalities and requirements on an API level, not so much on a use case level, but on the API level. And the reason why we do this is that this is the right architectural abstraction level that allows us to build a scalable stack. 
across uh, all functionalities that we have in Picnic. Right. Okay, uh, Eric, I think it's time um, uh, for our dilemma. Um, we have a dilemma today from uh, Johan Noltes, a colleague of ours working in the cloud and architecture team. So let's listen to the, uh, to the uh, dilemma of Johan. Hey, Erik and Guido, this is Johan Noltes. You asked me to come up with a dilemma for your guests with regards to digital architecture. And I have an interesting one for them. In enterprise architecture, usually principles and guidelines are set for a longer period of time. And this is done so you can keep structure and consistency in the IT landscape of an organization. But when the organization is executing a digital transformation, this will require some change in their architecture, of course. Architects then have to balance between the shorter term transformation ambition and the longer term goal of keeping consistency. And this will lead to some tension, of course. So my dilemma for you is on that topic. Do you think that architects should implement a more agile way of working and make their architecture guidelines easier to change? Or should architecture principles stay principles and be valid for a longer period of time? I know that there needs to be a balance, but this is a dilemma. So what do you choose? Okay, thanks, Johan. Uh, Alexandra, what do you think? Indeed, we uh, we did touch uh, touch upon it slightly. Um, I stick to my perspective that enterprise architecture, with everything it includes, including principles, needs to be put in perspective and uh, be sufficiently aligned to technical architecture, solution architecture. And again, I come from uh, the data analytics analytics space, so also with data and information uh, architecture. And what I noted, and again, I can put things in perspective uh, within ABN AMRO from my current position, but also uh, looking at uh, companies with whom I collaborated before in my role as a consultant. And my main observation is enterprise architecture, including principles, needs to be aligned with the degree of agility in the organization. And I, uh, I can reflect upon a lot of things that Daniel has mentioned, and I recognize them too. Um, the big challenge for companies like, uh, like mine right now is to make the shift in terms of uh, agility also on the enterprise architecture side of things, where um, sometimes I see a disconnect in terms of mindsets. So we tend to uh, think in terms of uh, five-year time span enterprise architectures and quite a rigid set of principles. A lot of future state architectures, which are maybe too fragmented uh, per, let's say, piece of the puzzle and piece of the, uh, the entire enterprise architecture. Um, and linking everything together and aligning that with a couple of domains in our company, which are more progressive and more rapidly changing is still a big challenge, uh, at least for departments like, uh, like mine, because we make changes visible changes, and some are quite radical changes every three to six months. And some other parts of our organization make radical changes maybe every three to six years. And and Daniel just mentioned hey, that in, in his team, uh, almost every engineer is an, is an architect or makes architectural decisions. Is that then the same for you or, or is that different in your company? I like that, uh, I like that uh, analogy and I can relate to it, at least from the standpoint of, uh, of the work we do. But again, reflecting back on our, let's say, um, IT organization, for instance, you will not see that uh, happening uh, in practice. So um, there are a couple of um, 
principles and, and policies and frameworks and all these things, which are being uh, thought by a couple of people in the bank and then, um, yeah, let's say cascaded uh, in the organization. And the expectation is that you adopt them as they are and that they will not change anytime soon. Whereas in, um, in more multidisciplinary like teams um, in our department, you see that every single developer, for instance, working on an application or um, integrating some, uh, some new application with the rest of the landscape, they need to make these kind of decisions a couple of times a day. Um, and especially when you are in a transition period like we are now, uh, those decisions are yeah, quite significant. And the difficulty, let's say, across teams like ours is to make sure that we still keep the balance of the intermediate states and we don't have things that uh, progress extremely fast, but then they have 20 dependencies with other areas that maybe cannot make the same amount of progress mm -hmm. because of different reasons. But is there then, uh, because I can, uh, I, when I listen to you, you basically say there's uh, architectural principles for five years. Yeah? Is that a top-down approach? Or is that harvested from, let's say, the operational, well, the engineers with the micro-architectural decisions that they make every day eh, to sort of, yeah, to have a sort of communicating process between eh, the steer from uh, the smart people who set the, the principles for the five years and what's happening in the field? Eh? Because I can imagine there's tension there, right? There's absolute tension, uh, Erik. Um, the ambition is the latter. Yeah. We are on the way towards that uh, way of operating, but we're not there. So uh, no. there's still a lot of tension coming from, let's say, um, enterprise architects who still believe that, um, yeah, what they dictate has to be implemented in uh, in the organization. And sometimes they're right, because there are some principles that should uh, not be, let's say, altered for different reasons for a number of years. But more often than not, if we want to go towards the direction that also Daniel um, painted for Picnic, there has to be a degree of flexibility some of our colleagues are not used to. And maybe on that uh, topic, Daniel, I wonder if uh, you have still enormous growth ambitions. So uh, Picnic wants to grow into different countries, maybe even different segments. Is architecture or can architecture be a limiting factor in those strategic decisions? Is it is it a, a board level um, theme when you discuss these business opportunities? So architecture has definitely different... Um levels of abstractions and that there are certainly aspects that are uh, discussed and also uh, decided on board level and that is uh, more on uh, how does a specific business model or a limitation of a business model translates into architecture but there's much more also on a more finer granularity level that is more done by the uh, different kind of uh, tech teams to build up maybe on what was uh, said earlier uh, on this kind of software versus data architecture i think the interesting aspect what we learned is when you talk about enterprise architecture, technical architecture, these are important decisions that you typically make on a longer horizon. But what lives even longer are data models. So if you look really on a longer horizon, what is really creeping from one software architecture and the other software architecture is the data model that you define around maybe users and transactions and all kinds of other stuff, which is even more influential on the longer term than the actual software architecture that you take for a specific module or specific functionality. So therefore, we are putting a much more sinking power into defining the right extensible data model. And the software architecture is 
basically step two that you decide around it. In the software model, you define and the software architecture as an evolutionary architecture that may change, and that will change, there's no doubt about it. But the data model is something if you make a major decision say in the wrong direction, uh, you will have much, much more pain than uh, for the actual software architectural decisions. So if you look at the balance between the two, eh, so how much time you spend on developing the, the, data, the data architecture versus the software architecture, is there like, can you give some guidance to the listeners like, you know, maybe two thirds in data architecture, one third in software? Or how does Depen depends very much uh, certainly on the case, but uh, it is probably more um, uh, maybe one uh, once or two third or uh, maybe even more uh, one quarter, uh, three quarter, uh, things like topics. To give you maybe a simple example, we um, actually decided to, uh, in 2015 when we launched about the feature, uh, to launch two weeks earlier because we thought, well, this kind of two uh, this feature is not super fundamental and requires a small change in the data model. We implemented this in 2018, three years later, and this kind of data model was still the same, but required much, much more changes. Out of these two weeks that we could have taken in 2015, it took us uh, nearly half a year to do exactly the same type of work because it affected so much more systems. The architectural change was so much more fundamental that we had to do at this later stage. So therefore, it's so important to really think through very well the data model that you that you build early on in your systems. And and how do you, because you're still a young company, eh? so you don't have the legacy that, uh, that ABN AMRO has, for example, but how do you prevent from building your own legacy now? Because you're also now getting to six years, seven years, so you're building tech debt along the way maybe, or not? Certainly, certainly. So whenever you write the first line of code, uh, you have legacy. And so therefore, I think there's no no difference uh, legacy-wise between what we do uh, versus what uh, a bank that is uh, more than 100 years old uh, is doing. What uh, is probably the... The, the biggest difference is that there is an awareness in modern tech companies that you build legacy and you need to, in a very active way, manage legacy and, uh, let's say, scalable architectures and evolutionary architectures. And that is essentially the difference between one of the traditional incumbent companies uh, that has been founded before, let's say, 2000 and the companies that were founded afterwards. So do you then create bridges between those three types of architectures? So the legacy, uh, towards the, the revolutionary? Um, we built certainly a stage architectures where we say, um, uh, let's say we built on both the data, the software, and the kind of the integration architectures, um, a different kind of levels of abstraction. And uh, we also force ourselves, or when we judge an architectural proposal, we are judging it not only how well does it fit today's use case and maybe potentially uh, future use cases, but the most important judgment that we do is how easy can we change it. So if we don't know the future, then the only optimization that we need to do is, and most likely we will be wrong, is that we can quickly change it. Yeah. And, and how is that for you, Alexander? Because I can imagine you're in a part of the, of the bank where you are doing quite new stuff, but you definitely run into maybe uh, legacy systems or, or other architectural decisions made before you that affect your work. Can you elaborate a bit on, on how does that work for you? Sure. Um, I would say um, before we even started with um, putting in place the new, we call them data platforms. In fact, they're uh, cloud-based data platforms with, in this case, Microsoft Azure. Um, I wanted to put at least three things in place before we even started the work. 
and I can uh, also reflect a little bit on uh, on what Daniel said because I fully agree. Um, first of all, this architecture for us, the data and information architecture had to be robust from the very beginning. So we are looking three to five years ahead, um, future proof, um, exactly in the line of thinking of an ecosystem driven um, set of operating models, which of course our bank would like to adopt uh, as soon as possible. And last but not least, it has to be fit for, for purpose. So fit for purpose means, of course, with a time horizon of, uh, of two years in the back of our heads, because beyond two years, nobody really knows what will actually happen. Um, it has to fit the requirements and the needs of today and of the next year for our business stakeholders. Uh, and I have to say, we were in a little bit of a luxury situation when it comes to data platforms and also putting in place uh, things like architectural patterns or consumption patterns for different usages, um, also different data models. We had full freedom in that sense. And the, one of the first things I've done was to hire a data and information architect because I, um, I knew from the beginning that we cannot have this journey without such an important role. Um, but what I am sometimes struggling with uh, myself, but I would say our teams and lots of other tribes in, uh, in the bank is indeed to ensure that level of flexibility that, uh, that Daniel was referring to so that as soon as possible, when ABN AMRO is ready to go into an ecosystem way of working with different parties and not just vendors and, and the current partners we have and the companies uh, we invest in, because we also have a digital investment fund and a lot of the platforms we currently work with come via that route, which is nice. Um, so that we have this possibility and we talked about data and digital capabilities to very easily plug them in the ecosystem and plug them out of the ecosystem. That's where I think um, at least the company I currently work for needs to make the leap. And, and what was um, uh, an example or inspiration for you when you started? Because I think it's very powerful that you start with those very robust principles at the beginning. Where did you take your inspiration from? Well, I have to say, um, primarily during my time at, uh, at Gartner, I was part of a lot of um, major digital transformations uh, with companies slightly bigger than ABN AMRO and not just banks. Uh, and in there, I could uh, literally see in action at different points in time, what are the basics and the critical things that have to be in place. Uh, and that's also what I brought with me in, uh, in ABN AMRO, and at least in the domain we're operating in, which is the customer experience or customer and digital engagement domain. Um, I'm happy to say I applied the, the lessons learned and also the, yeah, I tried to avoid the, the, the topics that I knew would go wrong at some point from experience. And Daniel, uh, when we speak about customers, eh? so uh, Picnic, uh, eh, you want to be the online supermarket that makes grocery shopping uh, simple, fun, and affordable eh, for all customers. So what is the what is the role that architecture plays in that? So uh, architectures are the spider in the web that are bringing uh, probably all important stakeholders when building a digital product uh, together. And that is on the one hand, all kind of different uh, business stakeholders, but also technical stakeholders. This is uh, security, this is infrastructure, this is engineers, etc. And build also an, um, a logical architecture that captures uh, both a data model that represents, for instance, all kind of uh, consumer transactions, but also 
uh, aspects that are related to a consumer transaction. Let me uh, maybe explain. What um, When you're customer focused, then obviously you have a model which says a customer has bought X, Y, Z, but you have also a model how happy has been a customer today and yesterday and how likely will he be tomorrow happy if you offer him that. So this kind of comprehensive model that you build both on the data side and later also on the software side is something that make it possible that you can be completely customer-centric. So therefore, architects uh, play a very, very important role in, uh, in this kind of journey. And that uh, links then also to maybe less consumer-related or consumer-centric kind of topics. So for us, this means uh, it links also to all supply chain-related topics. So supply chain means, uh, for instance, if you are placing a first order at Picnic, we want to make sure that absolutely everything is perfect in this kind of first order. Obviously, it should be for all of them, but the first order needs to be absolutely nailed. And that is the kind of the link where you have something between the consumer and the supply chain operational side um, that, is, um, that is basically making our overall architecture. And if you look at that, uh, then what, what specific thing or project or initiative that you did uh, in making this customer journey uh, fantastic? Eh? What is the thing you are most proud of if you look back? That is always a tricky question because you need to uh, choose a bit your favorite child. Uh, but um, we recently made a very nice project where we uh, built, um, where we made the. Let me, let me take a step back. Um, um, we have we have a bit of luxury situation that uh, a lot of customers want to use the picnic service, but um, we cannot so quickly build up capacity in fulfillment and in distribution, etc. For the simple reason that we need to find the people that uh, drive the cars, and we need to find uh, we need to buy the cars, and all kind of other, let's say, more technical or infrastructure related topics. So that means that. Um, before you enter the picnic shop, uh, you sometimes need to wait a little bit. So therefore, one of the customer journeys uh, is building up a waiting list that uh, where customers get uh, all kinds of uh, goodies and enjoyment and games and all kinds of stuff while waiting that they can enter the store. So this is something, a journey that we worked on for a couple of months. And we now see that this is helping customers to stay engaged, but also to have a better conversion when they enter the store and to stay also very much very loyal when, while they are waiting uh, before they can enter the, the shop. Yeah, so that's what I experienced when I became a customer of Picnic, eh, that uh, I got uh, a free uh, free bag of chips and uh, things like that because I was not yet... Uh, and also healthy stuff, yeah. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very, very good. Hey, Eric, I think we're nearing the end of our, uh, our episodes. Yep. We are. And uh, what we usually do at the end of the episode is that we ask each of you uh, two tips for your peers in other companies. So, uh, Alexandra, what are you your two famous tips for your peers in other companies? Well, let's see how famous they can be. Um, I can think of the following. Um, first of all, disruptive technologies. Um, and what do I mean with it? Uh, for individuals like myself, uh, it's just second nature to keep up with uh, with everything out there which is disruptive, to scout the market and uh, try to understand how can I apply that in my current role and maybe throughout my career. But my tip for especially people who do not do that for whichever reason right now is to just do it and do it um, if, you, if not for, let's say, your own curiosity, just to make sure that you remain relevant in the job market at all times. And again, uh, be open for uh, for new ideas. That's one. And the second one, and I have to say it's more applicable to individuals like myself who chose to work for uh, a corporation or in a corporate environment. 
do not fall into the trap of uh, becoming way too comfortable with your own, let's say, colleagues, some of whom in the meantime might have become your friends, um, and just, you know, be cozy and comfortable within your organization, but always stay connected to the outside world. So what is happening in your own market? What is happening in your industry? What is happening in the world? What is happening across industries? Um, how does that affect you? Okay, and Daniel? Yes, um, probably not a big surprise, but uh, I think the first uh, the first advice would be start with data and uh, build a data model and uh, every everything else. Your business architecture, your software architecture needs to follow in the second step. The second one is uh, don't fall too much in love with a specific technology. What really drives uh, the value of a product or of a service is the architecture. That means how you use the technology. So in this sense, if somebody uh, talks about legacy technologies, then uh, my response to this is there's no problem with a legacy technology. Uh, you have a problem with legacy architectures. So that would be uh, my two cents. Thanks a lot. Yeah, then we come to the end of this uh, episode. Thanks again to Daniel, to Alexandra, and uh, also thanks to our listeners and uh, happy to uh, have you in the next episode. <laughs>